Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Galatians. Turn to the book of Galatians. We're going to be reading just a moment from chapter 2. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses 11 to 14. Verses 11 to 14. But before we do that, I want to welcome you to Hagerstown Church again. You've already been welcomed once, but I want to tell you it really is a joy to see each and every one of you gather here this morning. And today is an exciting day, but it's also a bit of a sad day for me because we began just nine weeks ago a series entitled The Gospel-Centered Life. It's been a series that has nourished my soul. It has encouraged me. It has often corrected me struck me, uh, but, uh, but I've been blessed by it, and I hope and I pray both myself and Pastor Tim um, that that is your testimony as well, that this has been a help to you. I'm so thankful for the plurality of elders that we have as uh, a church here at Hagerstown Church. I'm thankful for Pastor Tim and his ability to bring the word as he did last week and to, uh, to preach from Matthew 18 uh, on the text uh, there and the, and the topic forgiveness. I know I was encouraged, and specifically in my life group, I know there were so many of us, myself included, that were can, uh, just encouraged uh, to pursue the gospel-centered life specifically in the, by means of forgiveness. I've said this several, uh, several times over the past uh, few weeks, but I, I worry, uh, tongue-in-cheek, I worry that I will uh, exasperate you as I continually remind you of what uh, the, the definition of the gospel is. And I know that that won't wear you, wear you out because that is our life as Christians. And so I want to begin there this morning talking and reminding you about what the gospel is. And so the gospel is this. Maybe if you know it, you can say it with me. I'm saying it the same way every week. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's only one of you that knew that, uh, that said that with me. So we're going to just, sad thing, we're going to have to reboot this whole series again. No, I don't, I'm just kidding. We, we, we really could start back over, and I think we would all be helped and encouraged in that way. The church, would, uh, the church would surely be helped. That's the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel. But what is the gospel-centered life? If you live a life as a Christian that is centered on, that finds the gospel at, at the very center of its being, what will it look like? Will it look like this? It's the continual rediscovery of these truths in your life, that God is more holy than you can imagine, that you are more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. Perhaps you've heard that nine times in your life. Perhaps you've heard that 2,000 times. And maybe perhaps it's the first time. Either way, it's still good news. That's what gospel means. It simply means good news. It's the continual rediscovery of these truths. That God is more holy than you can imagine. You are more sinful than you realize. And the cross is more powerful than you know. So that has informed us in so many different ways over the last nine weeks. Particularly last week, Pastor Tim brought the sermon to us and he spoke about forgiveness and how the gospel empowers us to forgive. Two weeks ago, we talked about how grace working in our lives, in our hearts, in our, in our being will eventually work grace out in our lives towards others. One of the ways that we said that that would happen, that we drew from the text, was that we would begin to be forgiving people. We've been forgiven. 
God's grace has been extended to us. It begins to change us and to work us. And as that gear and that cog begins to turn, it's, it's made contact with the one that, that we can draw or, or motivate or, or demonstrate action in, which would be particularly through forgiveness. And this morning, we're going to be looking at, at something a little bit uh, different, but similar. It overlaps with this idea of forgiveness, and that's this idea of conflict resolution. So we're going to talk about conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. doesn't matter who you are, what stage of life that you find yourself in this morning. I know this is probably true about you, that you have encountered conflict in some area, on some level, maybe in every area and on every level. It's ever-present conflict, especially in these days, 2020. Maybe it's marital occupational, theological, relational, Facebookial. I don't know. That's the main one. It doesn't matter where you go, you are going to encounter conflict. And so what are we to do? How are we to respond when we find ourselves in the midst of conflict? The fight or flight response is a physiological reaction that occurs in response to a perceived harmful event. I took this right from Wikipedia. I didn't come up with this. To a perceived harmful event, attack, or threat to survival. It was first described by Walter Bradford Cannon in the early 1900s. And his theory states that humans react to threats with a general discharge of the sympathetic nervous system, preparing them for either fighting or fleeing. Oftentimes... We ask that question of each other. We ask it of ourselves. We wonder, who are you? What kind of person are you? Are you a fight person or are you a fight person? Are you the type of person when the going gets tough that you're going to run or are you going to fight? Now, I don't want to test any of you this morning. I'll just take your word for it. But if you did find yourself in some type of a situation, maybe it was a physical threat, Maybe it was just some type of a relational, social, interpersonal uh, issue and you perceived it as a threat. What is your instinct? What type of of person are you? Using that framework that Mr. Cannon gave to us, are you going to lean into flight? Are you going to flee? Or are you going to lean into fight? Which one is it? I want to help you uh, to determine your current disposition this morning by asking a few questions. And wives, I want to just encourage you. As a matter of fact, I just want to ask you to keep the, the elbow blows to a minimum. And Jeff Foxworthy style, I'll just walk through some of these questions and say, you might be a fighter if this is true about you, or you might be a flighter. It's not a word it is now. Um, you might be a flighter if you do these things. So first one. Let's kind of work through this, uh, this topic of, or the, this uh, area of fight. And so maybe under fight, you're the volcano. You deal with anger or frustration by venting it. And so when anger or frustration comes to you, you immediately, you vent it out. Maybe you vent it by throwing things. Maybe you slam things. Maybe you say things you shouldn't say, but are really down deep in your heart. That's what you want to say. That's what's coming out. So maybe you're the volcano. If you are, if that's your thing, then you're probably going to be categorized under fight. You're a fighter. Maybe you're the lawyer. When conflict comes your way, you argue, argue your case 
passionately. You ask questions like, how do you know that? Can you even prove that? As if it's some type of a court case that you're, you're representing your client. Of course, you're the client. Or related to the lawyer, maybe you're the cross-examiner. Both of these are fighters. You turn the argument that was focused on you and you turn it around and you focus on the other person. They began the conversation by talking about something that you're doing wrong. But somehow, you now have spun this whole thing. They're, they're, they realize they're in over their head because they've just poked the bear. This guy's a fighter and now he's going to turn it. You're going to cross-examine them. So maybe that's who you are. Maybe you would identify yourself as the boxer. You, you want to fight until the fight's over. You're not done until they give up, until they tap out. You're not going to stop. Winning the argument to you is more important than loving your opponent. These are all symptoms. These are all characteristics of a fighter. Somebody who would, we could say, they in, in conflict or in, when they sense some type of danger that they will lean into fighting. On the other hand, we have the flighters or those who would flee. And again, there's a couple names underneath this or or typical uh, stereotypes here. The first is the faker. Under those who flee, you have the faker. You deal with anger or frustration by suppressing it. You have it. It's definitely there. It's not much different emotionally than the guy across the line here that's a fighter. Instead of acting like a volcano, you're just going to hold it in. Instead of just, as soon as you get a little bit of anger or frustration, instead of spending it right there, you're going to build it up. Which, by the way, in that, in that way, the faker and the volcano are basically the same person. One just prolongs it a little bit. So you have the faker. You also have the, the, the peacemaker or the so-called peacemaker. You have opinions, but you keep them to yourself in order to keep the peace. So you just, you, you, you claim or you present yourself as if you're some sort of a peacemaker, but really all you're doing is just stuffing down. It's similar to the faker. But you also have the dodger. By the way, so many of you could be, you could be all of these underneath that. And you could be just one or two. And many of them overlap. But you also have the dodger. The dodger. I'm not talking about the baseball player, but you, you ask questions like, do we have to talk about this now? Does this even matter? You, you try to dodge the issue. Questions are asked. Something that would, would, would draw whatever's happening in your heart up to the surface. And instead of answering the question, you go on. You do speak to this person that's asked you the question, but you don't answer the question. If you're a dodger, you could be a good politician. You also have the pacifist. The pacifist is one that would rather avoid a fight than win one. Even if they knew they could win the fight, they still hate to fight so bad that they would rather just not do it. They'd rather not engage somebody just to keep the peace. Again, similar to the peacemaker. You also have the runner. The runner. Sometimes you, you physically leave an argument. You leave the room. You leave the chat, whatever. You, you Just to get away, to get some space, to get some air. That's another symptom of those who would be under that category of flight. And so fight or flight. I recognize that this is not exhaustive and and this isn't maybe even biblical, but it's a helpful framework for us to think through. Which one are you? Are you fight or are you flight? 
I want to ask you some questions about your particular category that you fall under. How's it working out for you? How does your, how do your typical inclination, your typical disposition, how does that work out for you? If you're the fighter, how does that work? To subdue and to argue and to wrestle and to smash your opponent. How does that work out for you? Most times, in some form or fashion, those who are predisposed towards fight typically leave destruction in their wake. They typically leave destruction. So father, husband, wife, mother, employee, neighbor, brother, sister, Is that you? Do you see destruction in your wake? Or maybe you're a flighter. How's that working out for you? You suppress, you hide, you run, you dodge, you do everything that you can to get away. And at the end of the day, what really happens most of the time is you find bitterness building up in your own heart. Because you've never really confronted You've never dealt with these issues. You've never dealt with this conflict. And so you're struggling, not with devastation as much, but with bitterness, which ultimately will lead to devastation. And so both of these dispositions, they're, honestly, they're self-serving and they're destructive and they're unbiblical. Now, it's not wrong that you be predisposed to one or the other, but uninformed or uninstructed by the gospel, left to your own device, or your own devices, you're going to follow or fall into devastation, destruction, and possibly even bitterness. So there's a third scenario or a disposition that I want to present to you today, and we're actually going to see it in Galatians chapter 2, a third one. One of the things I love about the Bible is that we see problems, not necessarily with the Bible or not at all with the Bible, but we see problems with the people in the Bible. We see the good and the bad. We see the sin and we see the saints, right? We see it all. In Galatians chapter 2, we see a, a, a conflict arising between two apostles, the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. And you might be shocked. How could, they be, how could they be apostles and have conflict? How could they be apostles and have sin? Well, of, of course, they're still humans. So maybe that gives you a little bit of hope this morning. But we, here in Galatians 2, we get to see a, a bit of a conflict and how it was resolved between two apostles, Peter and Paul. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul recounts an encounter with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And most likely, this is not the Jerusalem council that's recorded in Acts chapter 15, after 15, Acts chapter 15 although it may be, uh, I, I tend to think it's, it's not that. That was a public council in, this, in verses 1 through 10 that Paul is talking about when he visits Jerusalem. This is a private encounter. But anyway, at that encounter, they discuss a few things. They recognize that Titus, who's a born, he's a Christian, but he was born a Jew, doesn't, or I'm sorry, born a Gentile, doesn't actually need to be circumcised. 
And so they agree with that. They also look to Paul and they say, hey, Paul, we recognize that God is doing some amazing things in your ministry. It it, it looks just like Peter's ministry. And so we're going to go ahead and say, hey, dude, God's called you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So go do your thing. That's verses 1 through 10. Then the Judaizers, those from Jerusalem who believed that it was Jesus and the gospel and what he does for us, plus things that you do for yourself. That's salvation. So they would say Jesus and the cross plus circumcision. Or Jesus plus keeping these laws is what will bring salvation. They were the Judaizers, and so they were showing up there in Antioch, which is where Paul is in this story that he's talking about in Galatians chapter 2. And they show up and they begin to teach and talk about, and just by their presence, pressure people into following the law as a means of grace or as a means of salvation. And whereas Peter, in this particular instance, had been there in Antioch and he was eating with Gentiles, which is not something that he should be doing. And so he's doing that, at least by the Judaizers, right? Statement. And so Peter, would be, Peter is there. He's eating, acting normal. He's welcoming the Gentile brothers, And then whenever these Judaizers show up, what happens? Peter gets up from the table, acting like he's going to go get some salt or pepper, maybe some, maybe, maybe seconds. And he begins to slink back through the curtain and he goes and he sits down somewhere else apart from the Gentiles. And Paul, he recognizes that. And here, conflict has arisen. And so here in verse, uh, verses 11 through 14, we'll read this morning briefly this account. And so in verse 11, this is what the Bible says. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, this is your word this morning. We recognize that every part, every word is inspired. And it's been given to us for our edification, for our correction, for our instruction. And so we come to you now and we ask that you do those things this morning. Pray that your church would be strengthened, encouraged, corrected. Father, we pray that our lives, that our conduct, may it never be said, is not in step with the gospel. God, this is what we have been focused for nine weeks now. That you would draw us into that gospel-centered life, that you would anchor us there in that gospel-centered life, and that each and everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think, everywhere that we go, that that would be instructed by and informed by the gospel. Man, every way we live the gospel-centered life. Father, we pray that it be done that it be accomplished as your church gathers and prays and sings and preaches. 
Father, as we meet in homes and in coffee shops around Hagerstown and throughout Washington County, God, we pray that you would work by the power of your spirit, that you would work that into our hearts. God, we're fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children and co-workers and neighbors. Where they're not living in step, when their conduct is not in step with the gospel, Father, would you reveal it to us? Maybe we'd be quick to repent of those sins and to trust you. Father, would your church be helped this morning? Father, we recognize that as we meet, there are those that are far from you that maybe have not even heard the good news that are gathering with us, maybe even this morning. Father, would we sense your presence? Would they sense your presence? Would they hear your voice through the reading and study of your scriptures this morning? And would you cause their heart to be drawn to you, that they would see you as holy. Father, that they would see their sin and by the power of the Spirit that they would be condemned by that. But that they wouldn't leave here hopeless because of the things that they've committed, because of the heart that's wicked that they have, but that they would look to the cross that they would find grace there. And that they would believe what you said if we confess our sins, you're faithful and to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we pray that that would happen, that this morning we would celebrate that somebody lost being found, turning from their sin. God, we don't just pray that in Hagerstown. Father, we pray that all across Washington County. We pray that as your church gathers, that that would be done throughout the U.S., throughout North America and South and Central America, Father, and in this hemisphere, we, Father, we pray around the world. We think of our missionaries this morning, even now, as many of them back from the field and in preparation to go back. Father, we pray that, that you would do a work in their hearts as they are prepared and they're encouraged. As they study new tools and methods to share the gospel, we pray that they would be fruitful. Father, ultimately, we end here as we make our supplication to you that you would work, that you would bring yourself glory. We ask that all of these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. I say quickly, and I hope that it's true, I want to make three observations from the text for you this morning. So three observations from the text. As soon as we get done making the observations, we're going to look at two applications, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. First three op- uh, the first of the three observations for the, from the text are this. Paul had an approach. There was conflict in his life. There was conflict there uh, between he and Peter, and he had an approach. Let's look at that approach. Look at verse 11, and then we'll jump down to verse 14. This is what the Word of God says. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. But then in verse 14, he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, If you, you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I want you to notice something about 
Paul's approach. There's no gossiping. There's no bullying. Paul recognizes that Peter has done something, that, that something's wrong in his mind, something's wrong in his heart, something needs to be adjusted, something's out of step with the gospel. And so what does he do? He doesn't go to his life group. He doesn't go to uh, his D group about it. He doesn't talk to his wife about it. What does he do? He goes straight to who? Straight to the guy who's condemned. He goes straight to the one with the issue, straight to the one with the problem. There's no gossiping, there's no bullying. He goes straight to him. I also want you to notice that the, that the confrontation that Paul's involved with in this situation, it's, it's a public sin. Paul recognizes that, and it required a, a public correction. And so his approach, as he goes to Peter, is in step with the situation. This is something that we can learn from. I admit that knowing when or, and, and to what degree correction should be made public, that's difficult. It requires godly wisdom. It, it requires biblical community. But while that's true, I'll also say this. It's far simpler than it may initially seem to you. You see, damage was being done to those who were under Peter's influence, that, to those who were even under Barnabas's leadership and influence. People were being led astray. They were being taught something false about the gospel, Publicly, it was being put out there. And so what had to happen? Well, publicly, something needed to be done to adjust these errors. And so Paul saw to it that it was addressed. Some things have to be addressed, right? Maybe if you find yourself under that flight category, this is going to be the difficult part of the sermon for you, to think that there is confrontation required for certain situations where real face-to-face, maybe even public, is necessary. And while it's difficult, it's necessary. It was a public error. People were publicly being led astray, and so Paul addresses it publicly. One of the reasons why that may make you feel uncomfortable is because you associate, maybe as I do, you associate being called out publicly with hatred. Or you associate being called out publicly with shaming or cancel culture. Of course, that's not what Paul's involved in. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is calling Peter out, but he's not doing it with some sinful, harmful motivation. No, Paul reveals his hand. He reveals his motivation there in verse 14. So that's the second observation I want to bring to you this morning, is Paul's motivation. It wasn't self-defense, it wasn't self-interest, but it was the loving defense of the gospel. It wasn't self-interest, it wasn't self-defense, but it was the loving defense of the gospel. Look at verse 14, it says, but when I saw their conduct, that it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This was the tipping point for Paul. The gospel, Paul is saying, is worth defending. The gospel is worth defending. I want to just give you a warning quickly. For those of you who are fighters, when you hear that, you think, maybe, if you're like me, wow, the gospel is worth defending at all costs. Well, there's a warning here for you this morning. It's easy to make conflict resolution, particularly when it's about a theological matter. It's easy to make that about yourself. It's easy to make that about yourself. 
it's, it's easy to start out under the guise and even under the, uh, the, the, the initial thought of defending the gospel or defending something worthy of defense. And yet what often happens, I know in my own heart, because it's sinful, it's desperately wicked, it's hard for me to even know it, it's, it's impossible aside from the word of God and the community of God. But I can begin to make this thing that was good, this table flipping that needed to be done, to now make it about me. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 19 say this. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, Paul here, he's defending the gospel. He explicitly says to the churches in Galatia, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to defend the gospel. But do you not think for a moment that it's possible that, that Paul also would have been offended personally by Peter's actions? You see, Peter wasn't doing what Paul would do. Peter and Paul had different theological positions as it relates to, to this situation. Peter was leaning this way. Paul was leaning that way. Paul recognized right off the bat that this is a, a core doctrinal issue. But you got to know too, there's an opportunity for Paul to take that personal. For Paul to take this thing that's so important. It's the gospel, right? It should be the center of everything we do. Paul then has a temptation to say, okay, this is important. This is a primary issue But you know what else? That guy, he's calling me out. He's saying I'm wrong. You know, I don't like that. That hurts my feelings. And so Paul has this temptation to make it about himself. But he practices what he preaches. And he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself in Romans chapter 12. Never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. So you say, but this person's wronged me. This person disrespected me. This person, they, they disregarded my intelligence. They acted like I wasn't smart, that I didn't know what I was talking about. And, and to beat it all, I'm actually right. But the word of God says, hey, don't avenge yourself. And so Paul, empowered by the grace of God, working in his heart, working out in his life, doesn't make this about himself. He makes it about the gospel. So this will be a good time to ask yourself, what's in your heart? Not what's in your wallet. What's in your heart? Are you defending, when you go to fight, are you defending the gospel and only the gospel? Are you defending the truth Are you seeking and saving the lost, which is what Paul was doing, or has some personal gain slipped in there as well? In an Ananias and Sapphira type way, are you, yeah, you're doing this great thing, but you're also going to get a little bit for yourself on the side here. You're also going to get a little glory for yourself. You're also going to keep back a little bit of the portion, although you're saying it's all for God. Perhaps... You have more in common, your heart, with Ananias and Sapphira than you originally thought. And so this will be a good time to check your heart. When it comes down to motivation, it should be pure. 
and not for any personal gain, not for any self-interest. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, he's speaking to a young pastor, and he says to him, Timothy, I need you to do something. There's some things that are taking place in the church that need to stop, and I know about them, and I, I need you to take some action in that way. He says, listen, I, I, I can almost see behind it. Maybe, maybe this isn't inspired, but I'm just wondering. Maybe Paul recognized that Timothy had a little bit of flight in him and was recognizing that, hey, it's going to be difficult for him to go and to say these things. Even if you're a fighter, it's still difficult to confront somebody, is it not? When it, especially when it's the right thing to do and it's not motivated from selfish. It's like, ah, this is going to be challenging. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, I, I know that this might be challenging for you to go to these people and to correct them, but I want you to know this, Timothy, the aim of our charge, the goal of your correction is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, listen, Timothy, you're going to do something that's very challenging. You're going to do something that's very difficult. And, and maybe you're not even predisposed to step into that with a, with a stiff chin and make these comments and make these corrections without thinking about yourself. Maybe that's not you. He said, but recognize this. Whatever you do, whatever work you do in the church, it should be motivated, and I believe it is, Timothy, it's motivated from love. So what was Paul's motivation that he wanted Timothy to have in the church? Love. And what was Paul's motivation here as he confronts Peter? Love. Love. By the way, if you're a member of Hagerstown Church, I want to remind you that you have covenanted with this body. And you have said that you're going to press in even when it's uncomfortable. You're going to go after one another when we begin to stray. When we get, begin to espouse certain things that aren't true, whether it's theological or philosophical, whatever it is that we're going to come after each other and correct one another, not in frustration, not even in hurt, not with self-interest, but purely motivated from love. How do we do those things? Well, we looked at it this last week. We looked at it two weeks ago. How do we do that? Well, because our, our hearts have grace working in them. We meditate on that grace and we see the holiness of God and we see our own sinfulness and how dis- disparate it is, how far apart they are. And we recognize that we're, we're not alone in our sinfulness, but that also on that downward stroke, on that increasing slight, we have good company, right? We have lots of other brothers and sisters who also are sinful. We look to one another and we say, hey, they've been forgiven by the cross of Christ that spans the gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness and their sinfulness. And so because of that, that grace begins to work in our hearts and our hands and our, and our, and our feet and our mouths begin to demonstrate the signs and evidence of love and forgiveness. Look, look, look back at verse 11. It says, why did he do that? Why did he confront Paul? It says, because he stood what? Condemned. Because he stood condemned. Who was condemning Peter? Who was condemning Peter? Was it Paul? No. No, Peter had condemned himself. It was already done. He was doing something. That was wrong. He was doing something that was evil, even sinful. He had sinful motivations that were working out in his life. And so Peter had already, in a sense, condemned himself. And so Paul looks to him and says, hey, 
I love that brother. He is a brother. And so I'm going to step in. I'm going to lean into that. And I'm going to, be, going to begin to care for him. Those around him. Those, who's, those whom he has influenced. And so he steps in in love to this brother who was condemned in a sense. And he offers correction. Now let's look at this final observation from the text. It's the presentation. The presentation. And so Paul presented the issue plainly and he invited a response from Peter. So he presented the issue plainly and he invited a response from Peter. This was his presentation. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw their conduct, that it was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, again Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What we see here is this. It's a clear presentation. He's not taking shots at Peter. It's a clear presentation. He's getting right to the issue, and he's humbly inviting Paul, or Peter, rather, to speak into this issue, to this discrepancy, to this conflict. Hey, brother, this is what's happening. You're trying to force something on these brothers here in Antioch that's not required. It's actually not even in step with the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel. And I need to know why, speak into that. Help me understand, why are you doing that? Why are you telling them to do that? Clear presentation, humble invitation. There's no ad hominem, no low blows, no shots taken. In love, humbly and directly, he makes an invitation. It makes me think of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for the godly. Christ died for the ungodly. You need to hear that again. Christ was sent to die. He died. He laid his life down, not for the godly, for the ungodly. Verse 7 says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. It'd It'd be very difficult to find somebody to lay their life down for a righteous person. Like somebody that actually deserves, in some cultural sense, to be cared for goes on to say, verse 7, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But look, look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us. In that while, this is a temporal word that speaks to time, at the same time that God demonstrated his love for us by sending Christ to die on the cross for us, at that same time, we were still sinners. We were still enemies to God. And so what could Christ have done? You could have leaned into the fight, right? You could have said, did you really pick a fight with the king of the universe? Bro, my kingdom has come and you are done. That, that's what fight would look like. To come and to annihilate his enemies. And those 
who have not repented of their sin and trusted Christ for forgiveness, they are his enemies. And yet he doesn't come to them and say, I'll destroy you. Nor does he run from them awkwardly saying, this is weird. I don't want to press into them. They're doing their thing. I'll do my thing. The kingdom of God will just kind of be, you know, quiet and, you know, in tandem at the same time, just working itself out next door. No. Christ does not lean into this disposition that we are disposed to of fight or perhaps flight. No, he demonstrate this, demonstrates this third option for us. One that's powered by grace and one that is the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't pour out his wrath on us. He didn't remove his presence for us. No, he came, Emmanuel, God with us. He sacrificially moved towards us in the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Let me ask you this question. Is it possible to do the right thing in the wrong way? Is it possible to do the right thing in the wrong way? I want to kind of make a, this is, we're not in the application section, but I do want to just park here just for a moment. I want to talk about an application of, of what we've seen Paul do here. And so I, I would argue that Paul has taken the right steps. He's taken the right moves. He's, his, his presentation, his motivation, these are all in, in step with the gospel. Let's talk about maybe a, a situation that we could relate to. We're not apostles, but we're member, many of you members of Hagerstown Church. Consider church discipline. What's church discipline? Well, maybe, maybe it would be helpful for you to be reminded. In, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, we're, we're given four steps by Christ himself. This is what he says. If, if somebody sinned, we're to go to that person and to tell him his sin alone. If somebody sinned against you, if you've come, become aware of a sin in somebody else's life, you're to go to that person and you're to tell them about the sin, confront them with it. Then next, you're to take some witnesses. Let's that's assuming then perhaps that they don't repent, they don't turn from their sin. Then you're to return with them with some witnesses and say, brother, we, we, you need to repent. Now there's several of you. The third step is to take it to the church. Let the church know publicly and say, hey, this is what's happening. So-and-so's doing this. And we've, we, I went to them and I told them that they need to turn from their sin. They didn't. And then I took some, some other brother. I took sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so. And we went down and we tried to, 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 to pull him in back into uh, to the gospel of grace. And he didn't turn. He didn't repent. And so now we're telling you guys. And then the third and, or sorry, the fourth and final step would be then to treat that person as an outsider. Basically to say, hey, listen, you're, you're not acting like a Christian, you're not walking in step with the gospel in harmony with that. And so from what we can tell, it doesn't seem as though you're a Christian. And so we remove them from membership. We, we, we consider them an outsider. Now, those are the four steps. Those are the four actions that we are to take as, as Christians in, in, in the life of a church. It's very practical. But I'm going to read those four steps for you again, but with a slightly different motivation demonstrated. And so you go, when your brother or sister has sinned against you, you go to them and you tell them of their sin and you do it alone. But inside, in your heart, there is glee because you've caught this person. And so you did the right thing 
You went to them, you told them of their sin, you let them know that you know, but then with glee in your heart, you did that because you knew you caught him. But you did the right thing, seems as though. Step two, they didn't repent, and so you take some witnesses with you, willingly, gladly, trusting that he will not then be able to argue against what you bring against him. He argued the first time, and now he won't. And so willingly, with, with almost a joy in your heart and a pep in your step, you gather this posse and you go to this person. Now, are you doing the right thing, seemingly? But what's going on in your heart? What is, what's your motivation? At that point, their heart is a bit hardened even more, and now you go to them, with, and you take the third step, which is to tell the church. And you do that. Very much pleased because you know that they'll be embarrassed. And this person, in some sense, has sinned against you. They've denied your attempts to exact church discipline on them and, and to restore them. So now it comes to the church and you're, you're pleased because you know that they'll be embarrassed. And then fourth and finally, you did the right things up until now with poor motivation, I would argue. And you begin to treat this person as an outsider because... Finally, they have not repented. And so joyfully, you do that in your heart, knowing that they have wronged you and now you have been avenged in some way. So this is a demonstration of how poor our hearts, how how sinful our hearts can actually be as we try to exact some sort of right action. And I could, I could modify that story by saying, hey, that's the fight, that's the fighter, that's his path. Here's the, here's the flighter's path. None of that. They don't do any of that. They don't tell this person of their sin, why? Because they're afraid of them or maybe because they want them to be, they want them to experience the pain and the suffering and the condemnation. They don't take any witnesses with them because, well, they just don't care. They don't tell the church because that wouldn't be the right step. And, and fourth and finally, they ultimately begin to treat this person as an outsider. They've skipped one, two, and three, but they begin to treat this person as an outsider because they just don't have the love to, to lean in. And so you can see whether you're a fighter or you're a flighter, either way, neither one of those are biblical. Neither one of those are the right step. And so what are we to do from a high-level view for the next few minutes? I just want to quickly talk about what you're to do. How do we actually pursue God-glorifying reconciliation? How do we actually move towards God-glorifying reconciliation? The first one is to take the right action. Right action. Right action. This, is step, this step is in some ways easier for the fighter, right? To actually take action. But not necessarily easy. Easier may seem like it is. One of the things I would tell you, and we can even see this from the text, is that the method should match the situation. The method should match the situation. Of course, it should be informed by the scriptures. So consider Matthew chapter 18. What does this Bible tell us? What does our, our Lord tell us about how to pursue reconciliation? What's your typical play, though? Are you fight, flight, or the gospel? Where do you come from? What's your typical action to take? They're all different. If your thoughts upon reading Paul's address to the Judaizers there in in chapter 2, 
him with, and his address to Peter and to, the, to Barnabas, if your thought towards that is, get him, Paul, yeah, get him, then you're likely a fight individual. And some of you are thinking, I, I would never do that. How could he do that? How could he actually offer correction to this brother, even publicly? I could never do that. You literally just want to melt into a puddle when you think of that, even being in the room as that is happening. Well, that's flight. But Paul took action. And so when it comes to conflict, we have to as well. But Paul doesn't argue and attempt to subdue. He doesn't deny or appease or run. What does he do? His actions are informed by the gospel. And what does he do? He conveys the truth and he invites them in. He conveys the truth and he invites them in. He doesn't make this about himself. He conveys the truth and he invites them in. And so the first step is to have the right action. And the second step is to have the right motivation. At your core, ask yourself, what, what is your motivation to do anything that you do? But particularly, zoom in and ask yourself, what is your motivation when it comes to conflict? Is it, to, is it self-preservation? Is it comfort? Is it defense is, of yourself? Is it so that you can have less pain? None of these things were motivating Paul. Paul was purely motivated out of the love of the gospel. And so if you, when it, can, when it comes to motivation, if you lean into this fight side, then you'll demonstrate this self-protection. I'm right. If you lean into the flight side, it's insecurity. It's trying to argue and, and wrestle for being safe, being protected. But if it's the gospel side, you'll lean, rather you'll run towards God's glory and you'll want God to be glorified in that particular situation. Not for you to be comforted, not for you to be vindicated or avenged, but for God to be glorified. And by the way, I just... Let me say this. If you love the gospel so much that you destroy the people the gospel is for, maybe you should ask yourself, do you really love the gospel? The gospel that doesn't just say that God loves you or that God is, God is uh, extending grace to you, but the gospel that says God is extending grace to all who will believe, to all who will repent. And so if you love the gospel so much that you're willing to destroy the people that the gospel is for, then I would argue maybe you don't really love the gospel. And by the way, it's so difficult to, to really see if that's true in your life all by yourself. This is where community is so important. Young men, this is why having a, a godly wife is vitally important. And so that she doesn't just tell you what you want to hear, but she tells you what you need to hear. Informed by the gospel, informed by the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, able to hold the mirror of truth to you and say, this is who you are. This is how you're acting so difficult to do this alone. This is why we need life groups. This is why we need D groups. And whether you say, well, I don't know if I like life groups and D groups, whatever you want to call it, you need the people of God coupled with the word of God to see what your own motivation is, to really see your heart. And so what's the end result? What happens at the end of all of this when we 
lean into our disposition of fighting, well, we find destruction. Regardless of who you are, you smash your opponent, you grip onto their neck with your teeth, and you don't let go until they stop moving. That's, that's destruction. It ends in destruction. What about flight? Well, where do you end? You end in bitterness. You end up with an explosion and all parties involved and in close proximity are, are destroyed as well. And so the first and the second one, they're fight or in flight, they both end with devastation. But finally, what do we see when we pursue gospel reconciliation? That's God glorifying. When we find a chance for reconciliation, we find hope. And so there is a biblical way for us as Christians to work towards conflict resolution. One of the most beautiful things about the gospel is what it does in the lives of true believers. Not only can Jewish Christians in the first century and Gentile Christians have that dividing wall flattened and removed, but they can also eat at the same table now. And here as a church, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to argue with one another as to who can come to the Lord's table because all are welcome to eat, all those who have turned from their sins and repented. All who have trusted the work of Christ in their lives. And so today we are going to be taking communion. We're going to come together to the Lord's table. And I want to, right at the beginning of this transition and this time moving towards the table, I want to remind you that it's just a symbol and it's just for Christians. Part of what it symbolizes is a kind of relationship that only Christians have with God. And so if you're not a Christian today, you should just watch while we enter into this next phase of our worship service. Consider the sermon, the things that uh, the word of God revealed to you and to us this morning. Consider what the, the table is symbolizing, but I want you to know that the table, the elements, that they will not give you anything new from God. Its job is to remind Christians of what, of what has already been given to them from God. And so this table is reserved for those, to, to put it very clearly, those who have turned from their sins, those who look to Jesus as their only hope of salvation and are now walking in obedience to our Lord's commands. If that's you, this table is for you. And if not, would you just pray to God, consider the text, and wait. If you are a Christian today, I want to give you some instruction from the Bible on how we are to take communion. So Paul, I don't have to come up with this information, Paul gives it to us this morning. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read that for you. This is what the word of God says. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to, the, to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. And so when we, when we take communion, church, we, we don't do it primarily with a motivation uh, as hungry people just to receive some food. Hungry people sometimes rush to the table with unwashed hands. 
And so there's a warning here for us. At Passover, the Jews, they were to cast out all leaven from within their homes and make this diligent search in their houses for, for leaven, even lighting candles to search high and low every corner of the house. And when they find it, they sweep it all up, they sweep the house out, and what do they do? They go out of their homes and they cast it out of their house. All this leaven, all this unclean, all this sin. And what signifies the soul, uh, or the, I'm sorry, that signifies this soul searching that we should undertake right now as we prepare to approach the Lord's table. As so I want to encourage you to make a diligent search in your heart right now. Ask God to reveal any wicked way, any sin that you have, any, anything between you and a brother, any, anything between you and a sister, anything between you and the Lord, that you'd search it out, asking the Spirit of God to help you. And then by his help to cast it out. Perhaps this morning, the sermon drummed up something that you have now become aware of. Some current sin. Maybe uh, last week, some unforgiveness that you're holding in your heart. Sinful methods of conflict resolution, so-called. Of course, you're unable to cleanse your own hands. But the, the call for you to have clean hands is not laid on you. It's to run to Jesus who does clean hands and gives pure hearts. And so this morning, if you desire to come to the table, as a Christian, ask the Spirit of God to reveal sin in your own heart. Confess, and repent, reconcile, and be prepared to come to the table. And so hungry people sometimes come to the table with unwashed hands, but sometimes they also come to the table with an individualistic mindset. They plop down, they scoop up their utensils, and they begin to eat. But for this meal, for the Lord's Supper, we as the, the body of Christ, we come together and we recognize, while we partake, we recognize that this meal is to be shared together by all the saints. And so glance around, church. Glance around. The, the table has been set for the bride of Christ. And together, we will share in this meal. It wasn't provided by me, nor Lifeway, or Bridge of Life. But that was provided by our Lord and Savior. And so we wait for one another. We come to the table recognizing that we are approaching the table together. And finally, hungry people come to the table and they just see food. They just see it as a meal. But this isn't just food. But wow, there is some nutrition that you will gain physically from these two elements. You need to know that it's more than just food. Paul instructs us, he says, do this and remember of what, it symbol, what it symbolizes. And so we do it like people who are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the cross. We come to the Lord's table and we see the symbol of his body and of his blood there's got to be a, a reverent recognition of what these things represent. And so when we take communion, we're physically taking the symbol into ourselves. We're nourished physically by that, but also we're nourished by the symbol. And so when you do that this morning, ask yourself, what do these elements, what do they represent? What does the, the bread represent? What does the wine represent? They're not symbols of some theoretical phenomenon no they're 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 symbols of a concrete historical reality that Jesus's body listen it was broken his blood was shed so as we come as Christians to the table we're reminded of that of the sacrifice 
Paul speaks to that a little bit more in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Christian, when you take the bread, consider that Christ's body was broken. He paid the price for your sins. The, the bread is the symbol of him having taken all the wrath that we deserve so that there's nothing left for you but affection, love, and grace. In verse 25, he goes on, he says, in the same way, he also took the cup. This is Jesus after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this cup is the cup of the covenant. It's a relationship with God or a symbol of a relationship with God that can never be broken. And so we drink of the cup and we eat of the bread and and thereby we take in the truth that God has bound us to himself in a way that can never be broken, not even through our faulty conflict resolution, our poor motivations, our sinful attempts. But so much more than that. We also eat with a view toward the day that when finally there'll come a day when we won't just think of the day that we'll see him face to face, but we will one day share this meal with him in his very presence. One day we will eat at the table as the children of God, as the bride of Christ, we will share this meal, this Lord's Supper with our Lord. And so if you're a Christian this morning, don't come as a hungry person. Search your heart. Search your heart. Ask the Lord to reveal sin. Recognize that as we come to the table that we're not coming alone. This isn't about you and your individual life and salvation. This is about the work that God has done in his church. And so look around and recognize that we are taking this together. And finally, recognize that it's a symbol. And as you partake, consider what this means to you. And so church, examine your heart. Consider the weight of what he's done for you. When you're ready, come to the table. There's one to my right and one to my left. So I'll pray, and when I'm finished praying, I'll encourage you the tables will be open. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way through the blood of your son and through the body of your son to reconcile us to yourself. So we pray that as we come to this table and we're reminded of that sacrifice that our souls will be nourished as we remember that we were even invited to that table our hands were washed but not by anything that we had done but because of your mercy and your grace that extended to us Father what a fitting way to end the gospel centered life as we come to the table we pray that for eons into the future that we would be nourished by the truths of the gospel and that one day as we sit at the table with you and we, we take this supper and this meal enjoy it together in your presence we pray that we would look to that day and we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.